righty. So we've got uh, Jim Rutt. Um, how you going there? Ah, doing Hunk good. Right? Yeah. And, yeah, life's um, good. Yeah, we've been yarning for a while. Uh, Jim is a man who, if you've ever used a, a, uh, the terms snail mail or, um, you know, domain names or anything like that, then you've probably crossed paths with his work um, and about a million other things. Uh, kind of a, a mad inventor and like, uh, <laughs> and so much more besides. Um, he, he's got a lot of areas that he's into, he can tell you about in a minute, but um, where we're getting into today is uh, uh, looking uh, into something he's really strongly been researching, which is consciousness. You know, so he did head up the Santa Fe Institute uh, for a bit, been a CEO of about a million companies and all this sort of thing. Um, big uh big big name in the tech industry right from the start uh, practically built the internet with uh, a dozen other people and also and um yeah but we're really going to be looking into the uh, consciousness side of things and um and cognition and where it is exactly and we'll, we'll see where it goes because this is his sort of pet passion uh since he's retired from a lot of other areas he just like casually learns a, a computer a new computer language every now and then just for fun once a year or something, eh? Yeah, that's about right. Well, I would also just warn people that a little bit over the top. Uh, my career was interesting, but not quite that glorious. I did some cool stuff, but I would not claim to be one of the people that built the internet. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, uh, I had a good time and, uh, you know, I did retire. Uh, shit, it's over 20 years ago now, uh, April 1st. Good old April Fool's Day. I always said that was an appropriate date to retire from the business world, and uh, you know, have uh, been investigating various things uh, since then. But my, as you say, my my through line passion is the science of consciousness. What is mm. this odd thing, or the thing we think is a thing? You know, because some people some people that study consciousness uh, say there's no such thing. It's an optical illusion. Mm. Uh, I, I think they're wrong, but uh, yes, I have uh, continued to uh, reach, you know, follow the literature. Uh, I've even written, as you know, uh, a little stupid little program with a allegedly conscious artificial deer, uh, poor thing running around forever, uh, as we talked about last time. So yeah, let's jump into it. Uh, I looked into that further, and it sounds like you've, you've at least got some obstacles in there for it to interact with. Exactly. You know, like I like I said, I was terrified about the idea of him running around in a void, and you can switch <laughs> and, uh, it on and off, which is good. And typically, <laughs> and typically, there's more than one, so they react yeah. with each other as well. So well, life is not as boring. It's you know, it's probably better than working in the customer support cube at Apple or something, right? Yeah, yeah, that's it. I, I um, uh, I once heard you describe the Hindu Arabic um, uh, numerals as. What was it? Uh, a, uh, a psychotechnology for externalizing part of our cognition. Absolutely. And yeah. It turned out it turned out to be a very important one. Uh, mm. You know, if we remember, you know, our fifth grade uh, math teacher teaching us Roman numerals just for shits and giggles. Uh, you know, trying to do multiplication or division with Roman numerals is amazingly difficult because it has a different conceptual model. But the, uh, you know, Indo-Arabic uh, number system based on base 10 uh, with nice little columns and 
you know, zero, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine in each one, uh, turns out to have some very nice affordances for, for manipulation of arithmetic. Yeah. And uh, as long as humanity was locked into Roman numerals or the Babylonian base 60 system before it, which was even more cumbersome, uh, we would, for instance, never have landed on the moon, probably, right? It was just too hard to do the math. Uh, yeah. And, and so, you know, this externalization of our brains, and, and by the way, our brain uh, has only the most rudimentary uh, mathematical ability. There's a very interesting uh, book, I think it's called uh, uh, Arithmetic in the Brain or something like that by Stanislas uh, Dehaney, a French uh, neuroscientist and cognitive scientist who goes deeply into how much uh, scaffolding we do have for numeracy and math in the brain. Uh, and it's not much, and it, is, it isn't much more than other animals. You know, for instance, mm. a uh, you know, a deer knows about how big a herd is, right? Uh, it knows about how many wolves are after its ass, right? And humans are much better in our natural state. So to the degree that we've become mathematical genii, it's because we've externalized it. We can write yeah. it down. Uh, you know, uh, we can prove our, when we prove our theorems, we typically don't prove them in our head, maybe little baby teeny ones. We write them down each stage. Mm. And so, uh, you know, one of the great breakthroughs that ratcheted humanity up, and it's really quite recent, uh, you know, was full alphabetic uh, written language is really only about 3,000 years old. Mm. Uh, you know, there's some older versions, the cuneiform and uh, uh, hieroglyphics, et cetera. Uh, but the kind of language that people, at least in the West, use in written form is, you know, it's only about 3,000 years old. So something less than 3%, maybe 1% of uh, human history, have we been able to uh, take what's in our head, put it outside our head, and then gradually work it. Because our head is not that smart, right? Mm. Uh, our head is, uh, it's got lots and lots and lots of limitations. Uh, you know, you know our, we can hold five, really? you know, you know, maybe seven things in working memory at a time. Uh, yeah, so it, it, it doesn't do much. Uh, our, yeah. our brain, like, you know, relatively, you know, when you well, oh, that's cool. most that's, of that's, the that's... smart things we do, uh, these are these externalized cognition. You know, it's, it's our incredible capacity to have this haptic sort of, you know, relational knowledge that extends beyond the brain and beyond even our bodies. Um, actually, actually, let me clarify that a little bit, because actually our brain is fucking smart, remarkably yeah, smart yeah. in the unconscious. Uh, you know, the fact that we can, for instance, uh, you know, look out the window like I'm doing right now and say, oh, that's a telephone pole, that's a tree, that's a chimney, uh, mm. is actually something that the biggest computers in the world still struggle to do reliably. Yeah, uh, that's true. Know, uh, you know, a robot tying our own, you know, a robot to tie your shoes actually still doesn't exist. Mm. Yeah, we do it pretty easily. So the uh, unconscious and the motor things that the human brain does are quite, or in all animal brains do, are quite mm. remarkable. But well, there's a ton, there's a, there's a lag, isn't there? There's a lag oh, yeah. in between the, the biological mechanism and the, um, and the thought. Yes, in fact, there's a famous uh, result called the Leibniz result. That's the uh, one. Yeah, which uh, seems to show that, for instance, uh, uh, you actually start to raise, you make the decision, something, the, the, Neurons that control your arm to cause it to rise, start to rise before you make the conscious decision to raise your arm. And so one of the interpretations of that is that decisions like raise your arm are done unconsciously and consciousness is essentially notified of the decision that the unconscious made. 
Uh, and you've got a split second, a split yeah. second to stop it. Yeah, exactly. And then well, I'm gonna the I'm gonna use that in court. I'm gonna next time I go to court, I'm gonna uh, I'm gonna plead through that. <laughs> there, I wasn't paying attention during the during the uh, quarter second that I had to veto the action. God <laughs> damn it! Hate when that happens, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, that is one and that is one of the neuroscience interpretations of free will, uh, is that uh, you mostly don't volitionally choose to act, but what you do have is a very narrow window to use your uh, you know your highest level conscious cognition to say no. Mm. Uh, you know, I'm a man who has a, a lifelong battle of the belly, right? Uh, like, boy likes to eat too much. Ugh, I hate that. But, uh, you know, truthfully, if there's a little dainty sitting on uh, a table that I'm sitting too close to, uh, my hand will go reach out and grab it and stick it in my face without me yeah. actually making any, any conscious cognition at all. <laughs> <laughs> and then I go, uh, why, why did I do that? Well, if I were, if I was more mindful, which is a good thing to do, uh, mm. And you can see yourself doing it, and then your conscious cognition can say, "No, don't do that." Mm. And that may be uh, the essence of what our free will is uh, is all about—the ability to veto. And so that's so when and when I do denigrate the human capacity, I'm really talking about this highest level of mm. conscious cognition it has all kinds of limitations, but the background processing is quite remarkable. Yeah, uh, yeah. That is amazing. But then how much of our, uh, how much of our, our thinking and all the things we do in, uh, you know, culture and technology and everything else, and, you know, how, even what we're doing right now, how much of that do you think is, um, is sitting in and dependent on these, um, these psychotechnologies that externalize cognition? Um, well, let's, let's break that down. That's, this thing we're doing right now, talking back and forth, uh, is mostly unconscious. Uh, mm. It's not. Uh, it's not even conscious, right? Uh, do you think about the sentence that you're about to say? The answer is you do not, right? You, if you had to think about structuring a sentence, you can't do it very uh, quickly and fluently. Yeah. Right? yeah. And so this is uh, something that is internalized as a procedural memory deep in the brain. And if your consciousness says anything, it says generally what you're trying to say, but the turning it into a sentence uh, is, uh, is unconscious and pretty deep. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, the things that we're talking about, uh, right, things like theories of consciousness and working memory, uh, you know, truth of the matter is I've never uh, done uh, lab experiments on working memory. So I don't really know what the fuck I'm talking about. All I know mm -hmm. is what other people talk about, right? So uh, that people have done the experiments in the labs, written them up, put them in papers, and I've read their papers. And so in that sense, uh, the psychotechnology of a person, well, there's two psychotechnologies in that case. One is the invention of science, which is a psychotechnology, mm. uh, essentially. How do we know? Uh, one of the ways we know is by a science, not the only way we know by any means, but it's one of the ways. And so a person uh, uses the rules of the game of science to set up a lab experiment to measure something like uh, the extent of working memory, the famous seven plus or minus two, which basically means we can hold about seven things in our brain simultaneously. It's why phone numbers have seven digits. Uh, and you know, they say plus or minus two. Einstein was nine. The village idiot was uh, five. So it's mm. a fairly small range. Mm. Uh, so anyway, uh, the lab, lab is one, science, lab science is a psychotechnology that, that allows us to put into our brain real, uh, facts about reality or uh, 
uh, provisional facts because it's you know again if you're a true scientist you never say science says right you mm. say science says today but it's probably wrong in some substantial amount of detail and in the future we'll know it better and in fact it might be entirely entirely ass backwards and we'll find out one day but for now we think that working memory works like this then a guy like miller one of the uh, uh, deep uh, cognitive scientists who came up with the, uh, the experimental results around working memory. He writes a paper where he takes this, uh, this provisional truth that he has discovered about humans, or yeah, it's called because it was strictly about humans, and he writes it down. What does that mm. mean, right? He first, uh, in his own head, right, has a sense of it. And then something uh, kind of like what we use to make our sentences while we're yarning and, and chatting here uh, helps him create sentences. And then this is where it's really interesting as a psychotechnology. Uh, you know, you write, I write. Uh, people who write know that you first vomit it all out, typically, and mm. you sort of have the sense of what you're trying to say there. And then you got to go back very carefully and restructure. And, uh, you know, at least I do. I'm a slow and painful writer and edit, revise, edit, revise, reorganize, mm. tweak this sentence, move that sentence around. And so those are all psychotechnologies. And by the way, ones that we do not have any specific genetic potential to do. Uh, again, keep in mind, writing is 3000 years old or so. Mm. Uh, evolution does not move that fast, but we did not evolve to read and write. We basically have uh, accepted which is to reuse some existing capacities uh, in our brains to mm. add this very artificial thing uh, called reading and writing. And, and that so quite we, uh, drastically alters our, like even the biology of our brain. Yeah, the uh, brain becomes wired in a different way. There's some really yeah, interesting some, some, studies. Some really strange that, ways. Yeah, and then they've done, uh, you know, brain scans <clears> on, <throat> on, you know, non-literate people, right? People mm. who, uh, who never learned to read or write. Uh, and uh, you compare them to people, uh, let's say, the same ethnic group or tribe who do know how to read and write, and their brains are literally wired differently. Hmm. Now, that does not get passed on genetically, right? That, and that's a very important distinction. That's the distinction between Darwinian evolution and Lamarckian evolution. Hmm. Uh, before Darwin, there was a theory called Lamarckian evolution, uh, that the reason the giraffe had a long neck is it was always stretching his neck to eat leaves. And that got passed on from generation to generation. Well, it turns out that's not the case. Uh, it, what actually turns out, of course, is evolution works through an information encoding technology called DNA. And only changes in the DNA is, uh, get passed on. It's not quite true. There's also something called epigenetics. Uh, the chemical nature yeah. uh, of the egg and the mother's... Uh, uh, you know, placental sac, et cetera, actually does have uh, some important impacts on development, uh, but not in a way to make uh, a giraffe's neck uh, longer. So, so anyway, we do not have the genetic coding for reading and writing, but we do have uh, capacities that could be reused for that. For instance, it's not generally known, uh, but reading actually runs through our auditory system. Uh, right. our, lang our language skills are old enough. They probably do have... Uh, uh, fairly substantial uh, genetic underpinnings. They probably go back in some rudimentary form, at least uh, 100,000 years, maybe more. Uh, and so reading, uh, it, it turns out the, uh, when you read, essentially the words are being said into your auditory system. And then, then you use your auditory system to process the grammar and the syntax. Mm. And all that. 
So we didn't have to reinvent a whole separate system uh, for processing written language. We just basically have a shunt uh, from the visual to the auditory. Now, to, to what extent do you think um, it could be said, like I'm interested in the haptics of this thing, to what extent do you think it could be said that there is, um, there is there are actual neural processes going on with your pen on the page and the things you're doing there, that there is a kind of external, there are neural processes that are happening outside of your brain with your hand, the pen, the paper. Well, certainly there. How far the, do you go with the embodiment side yeah, of things yeah. is what I'm interested in uh, in yeah, terms yeah. of uh, yeah, certainly the beyond the brain, the, the brain, uh, the neurons and the motor neurons of your arm and your fingers uh, know, quote unquote, that your that the pen is there, right? And they know how right. long the pen is, and they know how much pressure it ought to have. And let's say you're doing cursive writing, there's a whole bunch of intricate hand. Uh, motions which have been programmed into your procedural memories uh, to yep. get a sense of procedural memories. Uh, I think a very good example for people who drive automobiles, right? Uh, when you drive, you're not thinking about it, generally speaking, right? It's uh, a pretty automated process, at least once you're uh, a couple of years past getting your license. And your writing is, with a pen on a piece of paper is very similar. The, the process of moving your hands in a specific way becomes automized, automatized, and you don't think about it at all. So your brain is actually wired to know a bunch of things about pen on paper, uh, if you're a person who does uh, pen on paper writing. So in that sense, uh, I think it's fair to say that the embodied brain includes our tools. And certainly as a man who works with wood, uh, I think you would probably agree that uh, your whatever this mind body thing is, mm -hmm. knows about your tools too, right? And yeah. allows allows you to use your tools with great precision and great artistry when you're so inclined. Well, and there's there's sci-tech that is is kind of abstract as well and not uh, not tangible, you know, in terms of working with uh, different number systems, etc., different ideas, abstracts, theories. Uh, those know, as well. Um, yeah. And yeah. And that's and that's the superpower of humans. Mm. Uh, for those who are interested, the book uh, "The Symbolic Species" by uh, Terence Deacon. Uh, is all you need to know about what makes humans different from chimps, uh, mm. essentially, uh, which is that we have uh, a much more powerful ability to manipulate symbols in, and symbols in the Charles Persian sense of arbitrary uh, things that point to other things. And those things can be other symbols uh, or they can be objects in the world. They could be objects in our head. They can be ideas, you know, the Flying spaghetti monster is a perfectly legitimate symbol, even though mm. there's no such thing as a flying spaghetti monster. Mm. So, uh, what, you, know, you realize there's this web of symbols that point to each other, some to the real world, some to things in our head, some to things that don't exist at all. Mm. And uh, so to get to your point, uh, you know, we can manipulate things in our head. And of course, the first one that came to my mind was computer languages. You know, I know something mm. like 32 computer languages. And uh, so I can think in uh, those computer languages. And in general, they all have similar capability. So uh, I could solve the same problem in Python today, C sharp tomorrow, F sharp the day after that, uh, Java uh, the day nice. after that. And I would, be, but I would be manipulating different symbols that, uh, and in this case, it's a quite uh, rich uh, set of not only symbols, but rules for manipulating symbols. 
so while the symbols are different, the syntax is also different. Mm -hmm. You know, in in uh, in C sharp, you always put a, a semicolon at the end of every line. In Python, you don't use a semicolon; you indent uh, each uh, line slash block of code, and and you know, and the syntax is quite different, etc. Yeah, uh, you might find that it changes your way of thinking or your logics when you shift between those languages. Too. Have you noticed anything that you that your thinking changes or the processes that you're using are different from uh, usual as you move between these languages? It depends how different the languages are. Uh, if if they're all in the same general family, uh, not mm. as much as you might think, right? To write something in Java or C sharp or C plus plus or uh, JavaScript. Okay, yeah, there's some differences, but it's all relatively similar. On the others, there's on the other hand, there are uh, languages that are conceptually quite different. Functional programming languages like F sharp and Haskell, uh, you really think about the problems very differently. And then there's so-called declarative languages where you don't. Uh, those, those things are procedural languages. You say do mm. this, do this, do this, do this. And then you have declarative language where you essentially say what you're looking for uh, and uh, and then the underlying technology is responsible for figuring out how to do that. Things like PL SQL or, and other database right. languages. Are good so it's like that. for different contexts and different purposes. Yeah. And so there's, so uh, switch think, of yeah. think a bunch of languages and they're in clusters. There's mm. the C family of languages. There's the, the super cluster of procedural languages. Uh, there are, are declarative languages of which database languages are a subset and then there's interesting weird weirdities like prologue which is a logic language you essentially build these uh logical assertions up and then you allow them to interact which is, uh, which is quite interesting and so when you and when you're in the big clusters then your thinking is quite different when you're within a cluster uh two languages that are fairly close uh you know it's uh, it's probably doesn't change your thinking all that much mm. uh, well I've heard you say before that um, that this uh, consciousness is, is is you know biological, and it's um you know coming from common ancestor, and it goes back to at least reptiles uh, have consciousness um, by the model that you're looking at. Yep, that's this that's is right. right. I, yeah, yeah. yeah I, fo I follow uh, John Searle in this, and a number right. of people that, that have worked in his tradition. He was a philosopher of science and language uh, and consciousness at Berkeley, and has written some quite accessible books on the topic, fairly short, mm. recommend them to folks. And, uh, and there's been a whole uh, a body of other people that have, have worked in this field. And I think it's pretty clear that if you accept consciousness as a biological phenomenon that has a purpose and has a cost and is actually quite costly in terms of both uh, use of energy and use of genetic uh, material, uh, then you can track that lineage back at least to reptiles. Some people mm. argue uh, to amphibians. Uh, amphibians, it's very, it's, it's a close call uh, in, in our tree of consciousness. Now, here's an interesting thing. Uh, it's now believed uh, pretty strongly by people who study these things and know a lot more about them than I do, that there was a whole separate uh, chain of consciousness that evolved, very separate from our chain, separated by uh, you know a couple hundred million years, and that is in the cephalopods, the uh, octopus ah. and, and the big squid, uh, that 
well, you know, of course, theirs are very different because their brains are mm. spread around their tentacles and they have clusters here mm. and there. You know, we have clusters here and there too, but the biggest percentage is inside this big old fat meatball. Mm. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the, octopi, the octopi in particular uh, show self-awareness, planning, you know, a lot of the things that we would, that we think are uh, associated with consciousness. And so it may well be that uh, consciousness is a very clever hack for solving the problem of uh, pruning the combinatoric explosion of, of inference, which is kind of mm. a fancy way of saying making decisions. Uh, and, and that is indeed my view that the reason that Ma Nature has invested heavily in consciousness, probably twice, just to, just in one evolutionary tree, uh, mm. is that it allows one to make pretty good decisions pretty quickly on relatively limited information. It's a good hack. Well, it's a good look, hack, you, basically. You you like to listen to everybody, and um, you know you made a lot of room for me, for example. But you know, um, I, and I recall you you put me onto this um, integrated information theory, uh, which was a this idea of being able to measure consciousness mathematically. Uh, and they proposed uh, how rocks are sentient, how how much consciousness a rock has, or a TV has, or a toothpick. <laughs> exactly. um, but then I did hear an interview you did with somebody who, oh, I think they Christoph. quite convincingly de debunked, not debunked it, but exposed it as a bit of a pseudoscience in that it's really kind of incestuous and self-referential and, um, you know, like that. What are your thoughts on IoT now? Uh, I actually did a really in-depth interview with one of the uh, uh, founders of IIT, Christoph Koch, and uh, I pushed back pretty hard uh, on yeah. IIT. And uh, my take on it is, I mean, IIT is a, a mathematical formalism, which basically says uh, things that are can highly interconnected will have greater levels of consciousness, and that. At, but because it's a mathematical formalism, anything that has greater than zero of a certain kind of interconnection has some level of consciousness, including a light switch and probably even a rock, but certainly mm -hmm. a light switch has consciousness. And, uh, and, and I uh, push back on that because I say it kind of fails on the definition of consciousness. Uh, mm -hmm. If you take a Cerulean perspective that the kind of consciousness that we're talking about currently is biological, and for a biological purpose, then a light switch may be analogous to, in some ways, some aspect of our consciousness, but it's not commensurable at all. Mm. And so the idea of saying a light switch is conscious, conscious is, to my mind, uh, misusing the word conscious. On the other hand, uh, as I've looked into this and talked to people who knew more about it than I do, it, it may well be that things that have consciousness of our sort or things that are mm. more like a consciousness like ours, let's say, uh, you know, the science fiction idea of a super smart computer that has a, has a will and the personality and all that stuff. If you calculated the IIT number for those uh, uh, systems, you would find it to be very high. Mm. So, uh, you know, in the language of mathematical uh, scientific uh, uh, discussion, I would say, if I were, if I were to put down a bet, I'd say that IIT is necessary, but not sufficient uh, to designate what we think of as consciousness. So things that we mm. think of as conscious uh, will have high IITs, but things with 
IITs, even high ones, aren't necessarily conscious. Mm. And the, um, you know, it's not just uh, all of this isn't just embodied in our in our technologies and relations in that way um, between things, but. Um, you know, coming up at least from lizards, um, consciousness is also about having a body. I've heard you talk about this before, that, you know, it, it's very much about an interaction between the mind and the body and, and the body and the environment, etc. cetera. Um, yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's what it's for, right? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's, we're, you know, we're kind of uh, exapting or using for what it was not intended for, uh, when we write fiction or something, right? The mm. mind-body system was not designed to write poetry or fiction. Uh, it was designed to not be eaten by a saber-toothed tiger and to uh, uh, capture the occasional gazelle, right? Mm. Uh, and so it's all about moving the body when you need to. Uh, further, uh, as we're learning more and more about uh, consciousness, and, con and again, I, the other thing, while I love consciousness and study it, I, I think we have to not worship consciousness. Consciousness is only one part of a much extended cognitive system, much of which is unconscious, most yeah, of which that's is unconscious. It. And further, and this is uh, Antonio Damasio, uh, The Feeling of What Happens, an amazingly good book. Uh, he makes it very clear that our emotions, which are uh, bodily in their, in their roots, are hugely important in uh, how our con even our conscious cognition works. For instance, mm -hmm. uh, he's had, he's uh, in part a clinical guy, and he's had patients come in who are suffering from a lack of emotion, right? And one of the, uh, you know, biological, physiological lack of emotion. And one of the uh, uh, characteristic uh, home hallmarks of that is they can't decide what they have for breakfast. Uh, you know, uh, as we're as our brain is kind of shuffling through possibilities for breakfast, it's our emotions uh, that seem to be voting for what to have for breakfast. Uh, and so uh, those emotional signals, which come from the body uh, to a substantial degree, are very important. So, uh, you know, to, so the body is critical. We evolved essentially to be an effective body in the world to be, understand the world realistically so we can navigate our body so that we can, you know, find food, avoid getting eaten by predators and occasionally find a person of the opposite sex and reproduce, right? And all those things require bodies. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, one of the things I find, uh, though it's fortunately, I think we're starting to move away from that a little bit, is mm. uh, the people who study this stuff and think only about the very heady parts of it, the very high level of doing mathematical proofs or something, uh, are, I believe, partially on the wrong track, uh, mm. that artificial intelligence needs to have an embodied component to it. Hey, you uh, went there on your own. That's where I was steering you towards that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, and robotics. Right away, it's like, that's, that's the problem, eh? Like, how are you going to get AGI with, um, without embodiment? Yep. And, and and embodiment trick. of some sort, right? Something mm. extended. Because again, if the purpose of cognition is making decisions in a, in a world, uh, those decisions have to have consequences, which means some actor, right? And mm. it may be the actor isn't a meat body, but you know, maybe the actor is a conceptualized series of, I mean, or maybe it's a bunch of robot arms all around a factory and a single brain controlling it. Uh, but uh, you know, it strikes me that uh, at least if we're going to use our human minds as a model for AGI, which uh, I, I don't think is absolutely necessary, but it's probably the fastest road to get there. Uh, stressing the embodiment uh, is, I think, really important. Mm. Well, now, 
this um <laughs> it makes me think like I, I really like the way um I, I like your scientific method and your empiricism that um uh it demands to have proof of something uh before it's real for you you know but at the same time uh your scientific mind demands that you have to be open to things that are proven yet uh to yeah well let's have a look at the proof <laughs> of that always my so for answer, example right? let's um very much part of our, our story of our relationship of as it's evolved um over time over this last year especially we we started out talking about um uh emu and emu story we we're talking about that emu dreaming like right from the start and um you know there's not a lot of emus in appalachia <laughs> <laughs> I know one, right? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, there an emu shows up in your backyard one day. <laughs> and, um, you know, and, and for me, in our way here, an indigenous way of looking at the world, that's what we call a something. That's a something, you know, this message. But you are, I, I just really liked the way you were open to testing it, open to the idea of, all right, well, let's test it. You know, let, let's test that and see what uh, see what messages come through and see if they can be you know verified or falsified and all the rest. Um, yeah, I really loved that. It was um, <laughs> and you just did it right on the spot. You did your ego death thing, you know, to see if you would have anything immediately coming through. Um, and then you went, yeah, well, I'll, I'll go and do the do do some meditations on it and start to see what comes through and uh, gather some data <laughs> that way. Now, did you find any story coming through? If we've got this uh, informational kind of uh, thing happening that, you know, this kind of um, butterfly effect of, of, of information rippling across oceans and mountains, et cetera, uh, to drop you know, a I have, bird I like have... that on your doorstep. As I said, I would. I did do a little bit of probing with meditative states and seeding it with uh, the emu, you know, literally an image of it, uh, especially the one that came closest to the house, the picture I sent to you. Yeah. And uh, so far, uh, nothing, no clear message, kind of like the magic eight ball, you know, it says mm. ask again late. Remember the magic eight ball mm. when you were a kid? That's I don't know it. They had those in Australia. Well, and, you know, and it doesn't mean a... the answer. It doesn't mean there isn't an answer. It just means it has not yeah. chosen to manifest yet, or it may be there is no answer. It could be, but, but you and, keep that uh, complexity though, lens open and see what what's happening around you that uh, that is related. The problem, though, is in uh, employing pattern thinking as opposed to that um, the patternicity. You know, patternicity is a different thing. That that pattern patternicity is just seeing. You know, that that human tendency to just see see patterns where there are none. Yeah, that's to see coincidences where there are no coincidences and meaning in things that have no meaning. And yeah, that's perfect the example. The per perfect example is the uh, very ubiquitous belief of humans in luck, right? Uh, even right. some quite smart people I know believe in luck, and we have not not a scintilla of evidence that something called luck exists. Uh, hmm. uh, you know, for instance, I, I love some who, who came up with this idea, but somebody actually tracked. Uh, uh, the behavior, uh, the what happened in a casino when a bunch of nuns went to the casino and when mm. a bunch of paroled violent criminals went to the casino. And yeah. guess what? They had exactly the same statistical uh, outcome as you would have expected. That's it. And, well, it's, hard. Uh, it's hard to figure out what to measure for some of these things. 
you know, um, we, so I, I had a Maori fellow on a few episodes back and he was talking about the observable effects that you can see with uh, what they call mana. You know, uh, you've heard Maoris talk about mana before. Uh, no. Mana, it's kind of like this, uh, it's hard to translate, but it's some, It's like this life force of, of you know, rightness and you, you almost pride, but not quite. And you walk with that and you increase the mana of all the things in your environment. And he was talking about the, the measurable things that you can observe to see when it's present and when somebody has mana or is using mana in even just a garden or something. And so um, I was like, going, well, if there are, observable things then then we should be able to measure it and then we were trying to devise we we're thinking through trying to devise an experiment where you could measure it but he couldn't see any way that you could do it without the act of measuring killing the mana <laughs> so it's not falsifiable which is really yeah. annoying because yeah, you can't falsify annoying. it how do you yeah anyway yeah. well, well on the other hand you gotta I be careful uh, you know just because it's not falsifiable uh, doesn't mean it's not true. It just means it's not science, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, but but there's got to be somewhere where there's a tiny overlap there. And this is where I was interested in the the psi research. And I know a few people have talked to you about psi research. I know Ben Gertzel's very interested in it lately. Um, what do you think about that? The PSI psi research and where yeah, it's going my, now. Yeah, my friend friend Ben Gertzel's. Uh, uh, he's a big believer in it. And he's even written a book on it, or he edited a book on uh, on Psy. And I read the book, and I poked holes in every single one of the experiments. Uh, <laughs> <Hey>. <laughs> you know, the numbers are too small, the ends are too small, the conditions, you know, yeah. one could easily say, well, what about this? What about that? Uh, and I actually proposed a, uh, a high-end uh, experiment. God damn, I wish I could remember what it was. It had to do with people using uh, 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 Amazon Turk uh, and doing something or other. Uh, I'll, have look, I'll have to look up my email back and forth with Ben. Mm. Uh, and, and his response was, well, you know, it probably it might not work because of this or that. Right. Mm. And so I guess, I guess where I'm, and, you know, and that's maybe, it. and that maybe Psy is very rare. So only a very tiny percentage of people have the power, et cetera. So here's where I'm at is, and again, this is the classic Jim Rutt, uh, skeptical empiricist, but open-minded. Uh, which is, I have yet to see any clean, strong, high-end experiments which would mm. show me that psi exists. On the other hand, there's a surprisingly large num number of uh, experiments. They're not terrible. I mean, these are not like amateur hour experiments. They're just, you know, small budget, small N, not perfect conditions. That maybe there is something there. Uh, so I basically am in a liminal state on site. Ben talks about, um, I, he said something about a meta-analysis, which was aggregating all of the data from all the Psi experiments yeah, over the decades, and that there were some interesting patterns coming out through that. Indeed. But, um, and again, meta-analysis, meta you got to be careful with. I mean, that's the, yeah. uh, it's, it's right easy to lie with meta-analysis. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. It, that makes hydroxychloroquine all right when you look at the meta-analysis. <laughs> so-called p-hacking, right? Uh, <laughs> and uh, which, you know, the, the p being the 0.05 uh, probability that it's not chance. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so anyway, I, for all this, and I talked to Ben about this from time to time, uh, I have neither ruled it in nor real, ruled it out. 
Uh, and I and I say I would be uh, I would love to see someone put together a you know spend twenty five million dollars. Let's put this to rest one way or the other, right? Because it's at least as important as the next uh, thing we learn about particle physics, if true, right? Mm. We're prepared to spend billions of dollars to find the next uh, strange little particle with the uh, uh, CERN uh, collider. Uh, why wouldn't it be worth spending $25 million to build 10 high-end psi experiments that are, uh, that the, that the experimental design is signed off on by the most hard-nosed skeptics imaginable, uh, and then let's see. Uh, so that's where, that's where I am on psi. Not, uh, mm. haven't ruled it out, but have not seen strong enough, uh, evidence to, to, have any to have a, a a positive view on and interestingly something else is going on that's not that dissimilar right now uh, you've probably seen this uh, cascading amount of information about ufos right oh yeah uh, uh you know the, even the u.s air force the navy mm. you know they're saying oh, what the hell uh and again i'm in a similar state there which is uh, there's so much signal of various sorts, but none of it in a rigorously controlled fashion, uh, you know, that it makes you think maybe, uh, but I would also say uh, not clear and convincing evidence at this time. Mm. Uh, and, and I will say that uh, just as a matter of mental hygiene, I strongly in fact, I'll back up a little bit. I strongly recommend keeping, being willing to stay in these liminal states of not knowing. In mm. fact, I recently started uh, propagandizing the following line. Uh, the hero's answer is, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't be well, afraid. You, to, you can say, observe something. Know. You can observe something and you can come to the conclusion that is real and that it is a thing. And <laughs> that doesn't necessarily mean that it's, um, you know, alien intelligence or little green man from outer space you know you it's it's yeah it's tricky not to make these leaps yeah so this is a story there's a story from uh central desert about this old fella um uh, when they were first putting in the train lines and there's a you know really old um like a desert man uh aboriginal fellow who he'd never seen a train before or anything like that of course and you know so he, he was following these train tracks just after they've been laid they go oh what's this you know and and, and then he's like amazed this this big two, two big steam train coming along and he um and he was just frozen deer in the headlights kind of thing and then the, the train clipped him and sort of broke a few of his bones and so he crawls, you know, uh, to the shack from some old prospector or something. And the, and the guy started helping him out and was fixing up his bones. And he put the kettle on the stove. You make him a cup of tea. You want a cup of tea? Yeah. So he started making a cup of tea. And the kettle started, um, it was a whistling kettle. So the steam started coming out. It started whistling. And the old fellow jumped up and grabbed the walking stick the old fellow had given him. And he smashed, <laughs> smashed that tea kettle to pieces. And he said, um, you got to kill them fucking things while they're still small. <laughs> so, yeah, all, you know, all his observation, everything else. Yes, that's a real thing. Yes, that's a dangerous thing. Like all these things are true. Um, but the idea that this is a biological thing that grows up from small. <laughs> yeah, that was a, <laughs> that was an untested 
hypothesis, that one. Yeah, but well, I guess he te tested the shit out of that kettle, though. Yeah, well, I, I can see it there with a the big old knobby stick, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That would be quite good. Well, it does, you know, it does provide us though uh, a kind of a potential warning that you know the things that we are creating uh, in the scientific and technological realm, you know, they could, and then this is important. You know, these these things could grow up to be really big problems. Mm. Uh, you know, you know, we're we're aware of the the field of AI risk, for instance, right? Uh, are we summoning the demon, right? Are we summoning uh, something that will destroy us? Some pretty smart people, including Bill Gates and uh, Elon Musk and uh, Stephen Hawking uh, believe that we might be. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's a whole another, uh, a, another risk one, uh, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Uh, there's a divide in that community between those who wanna listen only and those who wanna broadcast. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, if we broadcast and it turns out there are others out there in the universe and they're not friendly, that could not be, that might not be too smart. It's called the dark mm. forest theory, right? What, mm. The thing you don't want to do is be yelling in the dark forest and calling in the, uh, the wolves and the lions and what have you. Uh, yeah. uh so, it, you know, again, uh, and CRISPR, uh, where we can modify our genetic lines uh, relatively easily. Uh, this, in some ways, this could be great. Uh, we may be able to edit out, you know, genetic diseases, you know, sickle cell anemia, uh, certain kinds of uh, uh, Down syndrome, etc. But the temptation will be there to uh, to do other things. And yeah. Well, without that um, recessive sickle cell. Gene, you got no malaria resistance for a start. You know, there's there's knock-on effects from these things. You yeah, mess with them, and we know why uh, sickle cell anemia got fixed in West Africa because, as you say, the recessive will provide significant malaria mm. protection. But mm. the double, unfortunately, produces a horrible. Uh, oh yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, you know, at some point, we'd be able to probe on. And the and the single one, not too, not not, not nothing too negative comes from that. Mm, uh, mm. So maybe able to do a, a test on an embryo and say, oh, yeah. it's got it's got the the one, let it be. Mm. It's got the two, intervene and uh, clip out one. Yeah. As, as well, it's the you know the the good thing about slow tech is you have time to figure figure all these things out and uh, understand all of the externalities before you. I don't know. Start marketing bloody. CRISPR labs that some hillbilly can put in his garage for 10 grand and, and start making glow in the dark chihuahuas, which, you know, <laughs> we're not far from, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, if I had to have a little dog, I, I wouldn't mind being able to read by it, but still, that's a You'd be able to find them easily, right? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of existential threats going on right now. Um, I guess in terms of looking at the consciousness I'm interested in in the AI side, and there's, I mean, basically this podcast is a series of yarns uh, that's giving us directions in the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab, um, things to inquiry to pursue, and we don't like the idea of doing research translation at the end of a project, like we want the research translation to be public transparent yarns that are informing what we research from before we even start, so um, that's where we're going with this. And so, you know, I'm um, doing quite a bit of, of work on um, uh, with an indigenous artificial intelligence group. And we've been working on uh, a little bit of stuff with um, 
whatchamacallit, that uh, agent-based modeling, uh, having a look at some propositions around that for a, a use case and all that sort of thing. When the next thing we're going to um, uh, kick off into, and we'll start doing that soon, um, the, that's something I wanted to get your advice on. But first of all, just lay the groundwork. Um, I want to think about these neural nets and, um, and genetic computing. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm just interested because I'm, I'm, I'm sort of seeing that in one way, but I don't know if, if that's what's real. Um, I mean, in terms of the development of neural nets, and particularly, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the genetic computing, um, and you know, the way you might have these things almost mating and reproducing, and and there's some kind of Darwinian kind of evolution thing going on. Um, to what extent is that a thing? That's definitely a thing. Uh, so you've got pairs of these things coming together and producing an offspring? Or how, how is it working? Yeah, me, it's quite interesting. You should choose that. That was my first scientific work when I retired from business. Uh, yeah, back I in 2001, uh, I developed a neural net that's encoded in a genetic algorithm, and I mm -hmm. evolved it to learn to play the game of Othello, uh, untouched by human hands, other than oh. giving it to you. And uh, there's a story about it in the New York Times uh, about uh, you know retired internet CEO does what? And that was actually <laughs> how bad. I that's actually how I came to the attention of the Santa Fe Institute and began my mm. association with them. They said this sounds like a crazy ass thing to do, and uh, it was uh, it was a very very tiny field. Most of it the University of Texas at the time, mm. and I happened to stumble up when I was doing some research on something interesting around evolutionary computing more generally, genetic algorithms and such. I came across this idea of encoding neural nets into uh, artificial DNA and evolving them, and it works. Mm. Uh, and uh, you know, it's a it's a weak method. I mean, most evolutionary techniques take a long time, but they will find answers to almost anything. In fact, uh, neural net plus uh, genetic algorithms, one of the most general purpose toolkits one can use. You can solve almost any uh, you know real world control problem uh, with that combination. It just might take a while. You can play games. You can mm. control robots. Uh, you can uh, you know solve mazes. Uh, it's really so they're kind of like generations, like yeah, yeah. In fact, what happens? And, and is it asexual? Like, uh, let me let me know. let me explain. Let me explain. Yeah. Exactly. Okay, so it's, let's let's go back to my original uh, Othello game. Uh, I would you, you define um, a size of the neural net you want. In my case, I encoded in this DNA both the connection topology of the network. So how the nodes are connected in the neural net and the weights between the nodes. Uh, some evolutionary techniques uh, in, uh, don't do the structure, they just do the weights. I did both weights and structures. And so mm. this string of, uh, of data run through an interpreter creates the neural net uh, and it produces always the same neural net every time put the interpreter string through. And so uh, what I did was I would generate a thousand, let's say, um, uh, strings randomly, completely mm. randomly, utter garbage, run them through the interpreter, create the neural nets, and have them play each other at Othello uh, okay. in, in a tournament. Uh, and I'd have them, uh, you know, they, so they play each other. And so they, and then they'd get a rank score. And whoever um, had the highest score had a higher, a higher probability, but no guarantee of being selected to mate uh, with another one. So you pick two to right. mate. 
So it is sexual. Yeah. yeah. So you it is sexual. Oh, oh, that's mad. So let's so, so let's let's run the whole thing through. So I have mm. a thousand candidates that were created randomly. They play mm. each other, uh, and so there's a whole bunch of games that get played, and then you rank order. Uh, them based on their win-loss record. And the beautiful thing about Othello and why I chose it is you always get to a winner or a loser. It's a closed mm. form game. You know, basically 60 moves, game over. Somebody won or it's a tie. And uh, so no matter how stupid you are, you still get to the end of a game, unlike chess, where people the, the pieces could just wander around at random. Nothing ever happens. Mm. Uh, so, uh, so, then, then, so let's say the, the smartest one won 70% of the time and the dumbest one won 30% of the time is not far off from randomly selected uh, uh, strategies. The guy who's 70% has uh, you know, you know, a much higher, two and a half times as high a chance of being selected to reproduce in the next round as uh, the guy who uh, only won 30%. And typically the way I would do it, I would not replace the whole generation at once. I would basically uh, periodically have a mating period where I'd mm. randomly select on a weighted basis based on their win loss record to parents. Then we do crossover and this, and most of it's not uh, mutation. So in crossover, you take a, you choose a, a point at random along, let's say this 4,000 character string that define the neural net, pick a play, pick a number between zero and 4,000 at that point, mm. cut uh, the chain on both of them. Uh, and then swap the pieces. So uh, you might you might chop a little piece and swap that, or you might chop a big piece and swap that. And so you'd have a piece of both parents, and that becomes the new uh, the, the gets inserted into the population. And you might kill off again at random, most likely one of the lower skill uh, uh, neural nets. Uh, and, and let's say and let's say in a generation of a thousand, when I have a reproductive event, I might create 10 children and kill 10 oldsters. Uh, and then just keep doing that repeatedly. And what happens is your population gets smarter and smarter. It's mm. not damn remarkable. And you're setting uh, the uh, rules uh, for this sort of Darwinian. So it's not, no, it's, I mean, it's, it's sexual selection. It's not, um, it's not natural selection. It's not random selection. It's, 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 it's almost, uh, it's fitness based. Whether, whether the string is sexy or not. Yeah, it's oh yeah, I mean, it's got, it's got, it's got, it's got, it's got yeah, yeah. The algorithm says it's got a, yeah, a yeah. nice butt, right? Yeah. Uh, okay. No, well, a, he it's, is... strict, it's strictly fitness based, so it's uh, yeah. You know, the, your probability of being selected is, is you know is based on uh, your win loss record, but it's not mm. absolute. You know, we're not using mm. only the best strategies because that's actually very important that you have to select from uh, at, at a lower level, uh, even okay. the bad strategies. They might have good things in them. Which is all right. Important. Here's my here's my proposition. <laughs> see if see if <laughs> see if this is interesting or sexy <laughs> enough to be selected. <laughs> here's my proposition. So, um, I, first of all, it's very exciting that they can fuck. That's good to know. Um, here's the thing: what if they had marriage law? So basically, in our kinship systems, you know, we have uh, marriage laws which are basically um, algorithms, uh, patterns by which everybody has to live and patterns about who can marry whom. And basically these are algorithms um, that, are, that ensure over deep time, they ensure that genetic uh, vigor is maintained in a small population. 
that might be isolated for a long time. So you don't get all inbreeding and all that kind of thing. All right. What if I were to um, apply the algorithm of traditional marriage law uh, from, say, the Murray peoples, which I think that's a good one because it's matrilineal. Um, what if we what if we were to apply that as the mating algorithm um, in genetic computing for these uh, for these strings? That's and, fucking interesting. That's an interesting idea. Yeah. So we're, no, we're figuring out. Say, that's our thing: is to figure out this algorithm and then to get these things to fuck according to the algorithm. And I'd be happy to consult with them on that. I mean, I know as much about uh, you know this kind of stuff as anybody. Uh, and um, now, there, uh, you point out actually one of the problems with genetic algorithms and genetic neural nets is so-called premature convergence, uh, mm. because uh, you know the the more fit. Uh, reproduce at a higher rate, the, the diversity in the gene pool falls pretty rapidly in those uh, cases. And so we, we typically add artificial means to create uh, more diversity. Uh, yeah. one, one of the, one of the uh, this is very interesting for the uh, Maori people who are, of course, descended from the Polynesian people. Mm. Uh, one form of uh, genetic algorithm work is called islands. Uh, where uh, you have right. multiple islands and then you have migrations between the islands at a certain rate uh, mm. so that the islands, uh, you know, they may converge, but they converge to different points so that in the meta population, you have more diversity. And mm. then you, you, you basically uh, set the migration rate between the islands, uh, mm. typically pragmatically rather than theoretically, uh, to help find the result. Uh, so I think uh, if you could, in, you know, should be straightforward enough decode the cultural norms of say the Maori people. Mm. Uh, and now uh, you'd have to distinguish a male and a female and mm. uh, genetic algorithms there. Well, there isn't a male and a female. They're both equal. You know, they're kind of, they're it kind also, of like 21st century. It also would mean that there, see when you just select the fittest, you know, the biggest, brightest, fattest corn, uh, all your corn's going to be retarded. And I mean, it's going to be useless. It'll taste great, but it's not going to survive the first locust plague or hurricane, is it? Um, you know, so it's uh, it's a way of making sure that that diversity is in there. That you know, maybe you know there is something of value in one of these um, one of these strings that can't play Othello for shit. You know, um, that's why, and that is why. And, but there, exactly. there's maybe something in there. So uh, yeah, yeah, that's why we do not only select the top ones, right? You have to mm. be able to select the bottom ones too, because they often have the beginnings of a solution. It's yeah. not the. It's not enough to win, but if you don't have that little piece, you can't become great. Mm. Uh, you know, and this is uh, this is uh, one of the reasons that genetic programming, it's and genetic algorithms and genetically encoded neural nets are so interesting, mm. uh, is because you allow the search to happen in parallel, and you're not dogmatic in taking only the winners. Uh, you have to mm. keep that diversity in the gene pool. So yeah, so mm. I think it's a very doable project. I'd be happy to consult well, with them on how to do it if they're if they're yeah. inclined to do so. That's too deadly. Um, and we've, we've got, yeah, uh, some people at Deacon who, uh, we've got some um, uh, genetic, uh, genetic computing gurus there who are, who are sort of slobbering at the bit about this one. But we've got to get this algorithm right first. But does it sound sufficiently complex to you? If For me, that's what it looks like when I think of it. Um, anyway, it's in that shape. But just the complexity of this. Um, so, you know... Uh, and, and I've got it so that on one side they're primes and on the other they're not. But anyway, um, so M1, M1 uh, mates with F4, and then it's kind of coin toss as to whether it'll be male or female then, because the M's are male, the F's are female. 
Um, <clears throat> I guess it has to be a coin toss. So if it's if it's a daughter, it goes to F2. If it's a son, it goes to M4. M4. So M4 marries F1, um, throws to F3 or M1. Um, uh, M1 avoids F2. They can't interact. M2 avoids F1. Uh, M3 avoids F4, uh, M4 avoids F3, etc., etc. Um, what's interesting, I mean, you end up with all these different generations going around in different taboo relationships, avoidance relationships, and they can only marry across that uh, central, they can only marry diagonally uh, across that, um, that first moiety line. Uh, and they can't even marry a, across straight to the, sub, the next sub moiety that's adjacent there. Because uh, they have that avoidance in-law relationship. The absolute best thing about Jim, best thing about Aboriginal culture, Jim, is, is you can't talk to your in-laws. It's awesome. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, that, does that sound like it might, it might have, it's quite simple, but then it, it might just have enough complexity in it to get some, uh, there might just be that magic in there. It would have an effect. I mean, as, again, uh, it's a known problem with genetic algorithms tendency towards eliminating diversity too early. Mm. And, uh, you know, a scheme like that probably preserves diversity. Uh, whether it's really effective or not, uh, I don't know. You have to try it. Mm. It's certainly very doable. What you described could be coded up, uh, you know, very rapidly. And one of the beauties of uh, genetic um computation is it's remarkably simple. Mm. Uh, the, you know, the core genetic algorithm you know, that's used in all the other forms of uh, genetic computation, like genetic programming, genetic neural nets, et cetera, is idiotically simple. I mean, you can write the algorithm that does the um, uh, reproduction uh, in a few hours, right? Yeah. And you could add in uh, complex rules like this might take a week. So it's, it's, it's not a big deal to try it out, is my point. And that's All right. one of the things that I like about, uh, you know, the genetic uh, and, and, and more generally evolutionary computing ecosystem is the tools are actually remarkably simple, even though the ideas are mm. deep. So I would say it's probably a small undertaking to try this out. It's yeah. a known problem, the tendency to pre premature convergence, uh, which is basically incest run amok. Uh, yeah. And if you could have, you know, take a cultural norm that's been proven to work for humans for, you know, hundreds of years, uh, try it out on little beasties and maybe it'll work. That's really exciting. I know it'll work. I know it'll work. I commend the thinking. It's already working. We already tried this out. We've tried this out for 100,000 years, Jim. It's definitely going to work. Uh, the problem is, though, and it's um, so it take me a while to get back to you on this one, um, because while we may be able to do all that business in a week, um, the protocols, <laughs> the permissions, uh, the should we, the um, figuring out all of the possible externalities and how we're going to uh, uh, cover those, that takes a little bit longer. Um, so we have to do all that business first and cover all the protocols on, on the AI side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you also we, probably have the... We're not allowed to jump. We're not allowed to jump straight to experiment or, um, or to, to use case uh, very quickly in our way. Our method of inquiry necessarily takes a bit longer. Um, but I will try and make it happen as fast as possible. I'm a very impatient young man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interestingly enough, I am talking to... Uh, one of the top two or three in the world in neural evolution on my podcast on Thursday. Oh, I can't wait. A guy named uh, Ken Stanley. 
And mm. uh, we're actually going to do, I think, two podcasts. One will be on a new book he's written, which is very curious and interesting, more so mm. than I even thought it would be. And then the second one will be on uh, neural evolution, current state of play, uh, and its impact on the possible road AGI. Uh, oh. So, uh, oh, yeah. Well, I'm going to take the afternoon off and um, get myself something nice to drink and sit back and enjoy that one. I do love my Jim Rutt show. It's um worst thing ever that I didn't find find your work before I wrote my book because um, it would have been a very different book. Might not have been not so sure. skinny. I'm not sure it would have been better though. I think it was it was <laughs> great that you brought a fresh perspective in, and we, and then we could interact, right? And then, yeah, then your yeah. next book will will have uh, both both uh, streams in it. It'll be better than than either would have been by itself. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> Maybe it'll be not quite as good as as, as either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, never know, right? Often you pay your money with, and you uh, take mashups, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But we'll see. You know, um, maybe this enlightenment of yours is going to rub off on me. Yeah, we'll see. <laughs> hey, thank you, Buzz. Hey, it was great was, as uh, always. I always uh, a few things I enjoy more than a good yarn yeah. with Tyson Yunkaporta. Ah. Now you sound like you did my intro then. All right. So this was Jim Rutt from the Jim Rutt Show. All right. Boom, 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 boom. All right. <laughs> See you. Bye.